From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. We are having conversations with members of the civil rights generation. Today, two people close to my heart, my mom and my uncle, tell their stories. Every day, you know, we have bomb threats. They don't want us to have bomb threats? Yes, we have bomb threats because, you know, a lot of individuals in the community did not want us at the all-white school. And we hear from a protester in Iran's Kurdistan province about the government's intense crackdown on demonstrators. Plus, Jamie Lee Curtis stars in the new movie Halloween Ends. It's Sunday, October 16th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Barbara Klein. President Biden has wrapped up a three-state Western tour, but he's staying on the campaign trail to help Democrats in November's midterm elections. NPR's Mara Eliasson reports. Over the weekend, Biden campaigned in Oregon, a usually reliable blue state, but there's a three-way race for governor in Oregon, where the third-party candidate, a Democrat-turned-independent, could siphon votes away from the Democratic candidate, allowing the Republican candidate candidate to win. Later this week, Biden will travel to Pennsylvania to hold a fundraiser for Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. He's running against Trump-endorsed TV doctor Mehmet Oz. Along with Nevada and Georgia, Pennsylvania is considered one of the top three Senate races this year. If no other seats change hands, whichever party wins two of the three will control the Senate majority in January. Mara Liason, NPR News. In California, police say they've arrested a suspected serial killer. The suspect's reign of terror in our community has come to an end. That's San Joaquin County's incoming district attorney, Ron Freitas, announcing Stockton police captured a 43-year-old in connection with the murders of six men in a string of shootings between April and September. Police say they believe they stopped another killing when they captured the suspect yesterday. A Texas state senator is calling on the state's police director to step down following the release of an analysis by the New York Times that finds discrepancies between what video of the Robb Elementary School shooting shows and the director's public statements. Officials in Iran say four prisoners are dead, more than 60 are injured, after a fire broke out at a prison complex in Tehran yesterday. It's now been extinguished. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports officials are blaming the fire on rioting prisoners. Tehran prosecutor Ali Salahi was quoted as saying calm had been restored at the prison. He also said the unrest had no connection to the protests which have gripped the country for the past four weeks. Avian Prison is known to house political prisoners and anti-government activists. Official comments appeared to convey that those detained during the recent protests were not being held in the parts of the prison complex where the fire started. The blaze occurred as Iranian security forces struggled to quell the demonstrations that broke out after the death of a young woman in police custody. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. At least one American is believed to be among the inmates at the prison. Siamak Namazi has been detained in Iran since 2015 for allegedly collaborating with a foreign government. The State Department calls his detention illegal. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. More than 100 Eversource customers in Waltham remain without power this morning. 
after a series of electrical surges throughout the city yesterday afternoon. The surges led to dozens of emergency calls and transformer fires beginning around 2 p.m. At least one home caught fire, although it is unclear whether the power surge was to blame. Eversource is still trying to figure out the exact cause of the electrical problems. Last-minute contract negotiations between teachers' unions and school officials in Malden and in Haverhill are taking place this weekend. Public school teachers in both cities are threatening to strike tomorrow if deals cannot be reached. Malden Teachers' Union President Deb Gaswaldo says uniting with Haverhill teachers helps deliver a stronger message. We are not going to be stuck in these toxic cycles of endless disrespectful bargaining that are not just disrespectful to the educators, but are disrespectful to our students, their families, and the community. The Malden and Haverhill School Departments say they are bargaining in good faith, and they also are reminding the unions that it is illegal for teachers to strike. Boston police are warning parents about a kidnapping scam involving school-aged children. Police say at least three parents of Boston Public School students have received phone calls claiming their children were in danger or had been kidnapped. The scammers had personal information about the child and demanded money from the parents. Police say they want anyone who gets a similar call to report it. They're also warning people to be careful about what information they post online about their child. MBTA ridership has reached its highest level since the start of the pandemic. The T says subway ridership is at 51 percent of pre-pandemic levels. Bus and commuter rail ridership are both at 70 percent of pre-pandemic levels. The Boston Herald reports the increase is fueled by students returning to classes and employees returning to in-person work this fall. In the forecast, increasing clouds today and highs in the mid-60s, lows in the mid-40s tonight, tomorrow some showers and highs in the low 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scribner, publisher of Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, author of All the Light We Cannot See. Cloud Cuckoo Land is about the power of books to unite us. Available in paperback in bookstores and online. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. We have something a little different this morning, starting with some people who are very special to me. Okay, my name is Phyllis Jones, and I am currently living in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, my name is Ben Thorpe. I live in Seattle, Washington area. I know both of these people because Phyllis Jones is my mother, my mommy, so I'm going to call her mommy from here on out. And then uh, Mr. Ben Thorpe, we call him Uncle Anthony because for some reason men in our family, we call them by their middle names. My mom's retired now, so's Uncle Anthony. They're part of a family of seven siblings, all spread out, living in different places. Home, though, home is still Oxford, North Carolina. Even though, as you're about to hear, that's complicated. The house next to us, that was the white family, and they played with us, but they wouldn't play with us in public. They only played with us at home because we were black, so they couldn't show openly that we were, you know, really good friends. Back at this point in the 1960s and 70s, Oxford, North Carolina was about as country as you could get. Picture Mayberry, but not that friendly. It's only about 30 miles from Durham. A lot of churches, a bunch of grass and cows and, and, and fields where tobacco used to be the big money crop. 
I'd heard stories from mommy before, obviously. I, I knew she grew up in the Jim Crow South and basically what that entailed. Horrible things like separate and unequal schools, black people having to drink out of the colored water fountain. But this story about her neighbors, the white kids she played with, I had no idea. Where would you see them around? You would see them in town and they would act like they didn't know you? Yeah, if we were out, they didn't know us. Here's the thing. This is well into the civil rights era. After Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, after the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, laws in a lot of the country were changing, but Oxford was not. My mom and her siblings are not in any history books. Their stories are not unique. But in a country that still struggles mightily over race and the impacts of slavery and Jim Crow, these stories show that the past is not dead, it's living and breathing and close. That's why we're profiling members of the civil rights generation. Those names you know, like Fred Gray, an attorney for Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr., and those you don't, like my mom, Phyllis, and my Uncle Anthony. Y'all feel like y'all are the civil rights generation? Of course, yes. Why? <laughs> oh, because of during the period of time that I was born, we couldn't eat at restaurants. We had to go to the side. I was going to an all-black school, and of course we had the raggedy books. Uh, we did not have the best buses, and we were constantly told how to act, how to walk when we were in public so that we would not get exposed or attacked in any way. And what, what about you, Uncle Anthony? Well, I was born in the early 60s, and on my birth certificate, it has Negro, so I guess I'm born in that time, that generation. And I, sometimes I look at my older relatives, like my aunts and uncles, when uh, we were still farming at the time, and when some of the uh, older gentlemen came around that they used to work for, they still were saying, yes, sir, and no, sir. To the older white people that they used to work for? Right, and so they taught us to say that same thing, to say, yes, sir, and no, sir. Was there a point that you realized, like, you live in a segregated place? Like, I'm Black, and because of that, it's different for me. Well, to me, it was just normal. We couldn't do a lot of things because of our color. We knew that. I always remember us going to the 5 and 10 cent store. Mama would give us a lecture. She would tell us not to move, stand still. And we had to wait in the back, in the corner. And then the waitress would take her time. And we had to go back to the car and eat the food. I do remember that because I, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, they're sitting down. We, you know, we can't sit down. But because of the way my mama raised us, we didn't question it. It was just, this is what you do. Right. And, and just to add, I think that that's why my mother, when she went shopping, she would leave us in front of the church. And my mom would park under these shaded trees and leave us there while she would go shopping uptown. It was very rare in our younger years that she would let us go with her uptown because she was so afraid. She was so afraid something would happen. And so, you know, we always waited for her to come back around that corner with some ice cream cone. Yes, that was our treat. Been good. <laughs> something did happen in Oxford, North Carolina in 1970, right across from where my great-grandfather lived. A young black man, Henry Dickey Marrow, was brutally murdered outside a local store by the white shop owners who accused him of saying something they didn't like to a white woman. Again, this is 1970. Another son of Oxford, Ben Chavis, 
heard about the murder about an hour after it happened. I went to the local police station. I remember talking to Chief White. He says, well, it's under investigation. I said, under investigation? A man has been shot. They're like I was agitating them for asking about it. Unlike my mom and uncle, you will read about Chavis in the history books. He's a civil rights leader. He was a card-carrying member of the NAACP by age 12 and would go on to become president of the organization. My only regret was that I probably should have gotten the movement when I was 6 rather than 12. By 14, he was a youth coordinator for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference led by none other than Martin Luther King Jr. So when Henry Marrow was killed, Chavis, in his early 20s, was already a seasoned organizer. After an all-white jury acquitted the men who shot Marrow, Chavis decided it was time for change. So we led a march from Oxford to Raleigh, which is about 45 miles. And we started out with maybe around a couple hundred people marching. By the time we got to Raleigh, we had over 3,000 people in the march. It just grew. Keep in mind, Oxford is a small town. Black people had to shop at white-owned businesses. So Chavis and others decided to hit the white people in town where it hurt, their pocketbooks. So what went into the decision to say, we are going to boycott and we are going to ask the black people in this community to do this economic withdrawal? It wasn't a singular decision. People knew that something needed to be done or else this is going to happen again. And, And we figured that Why spend our money with people who don't respect us? Why spend our money in a municipality that refuses to hire? There were no blacks working in the courthouse, in the clerk's office, none in the fire department, only one, I think, black guy in the police department. He wasn't allowed to arrest whites. And so we were marching not only and boycotting not only to uh, get justice for Henry Merrill, but we expanded it because we, we had certain demands. My mom and uncle were around 12 and 10 years old at this point. My grandparents didn't talk to them about the murder, but they remember the boycott and having to shop in nearby Roxborough. It was also a time of unrest. Protesters burned white-owned businesses and tobacco crops. Here's my mom. During that time, they also had a curfew, and my dad didn't get off until after 11. So he would get stopped by the sheriff or state troopers trying to find out why he was out, and he always had to keep his uniform on because then they knew he worked at the hospital. I was more fearful. My mom would stay up by the door looking out the window, and we would stay up because she was was sending us to bed, but we couldn't sleep. We stayed awake until my father came home because we knew he was going to either get stopped by the state troopers or he was going to get stopped by the local cop or even, even by the FBI. Thank God, my grandfather, who wasn't orderly, always made it home safely. After months of protests, Ben Chavis says change did come to Oxford, finally. A lot of our demands are met. People got jobs downtown Oxford for the first time in their life, and they're still working there. So we desegregated a lot of the city. Now, a lot of the stores that refused to desegregate closed. Like the theater, rather than desegregate, they just closed. And change came to the segregated schools as well. In the midst of all of this, in the fall of 1970, Uncle Anthony was part of a test group of black children sent to a white school. He was in third grade, the same grade as my son Reggie. He remembers being scared getting on that bus to school. Now we on a bus with mixed race. We didn't know anything about that. What was that like? Were they nice on the bus? 
this is what they did. They assigned seats. So they put us all together. So we wouldn't have to sit with them. So y'all was still segregated on the bus. Still segregated. And every day, you know, we had bomb threats. We stayed a lot of times outside at the beginning of the school because they don't want us to. Y'all had bomb threats? Yes, we had bomb threats. And yeah, because, you know, a lot of individuals in the community did not want us at the all-white school. That was something else that I didn't know. My uncle at 10 facing bomb threats just for going to school. These are stories that shaped the history of our family and ultimately the history of this country. My grandparents didn't talk openly about these things with their kids. They did that to protect them. My mom and her siblings just want people to know the truth. I wanted my children to know things that happened so you guys could tell it to your children and so on. But also, I wanted them to know the story so that they could pursue an even better life than what our parents or our grandparents had. If you know your history, then you understand things much better. But I look at it like this. It has always been a challenge because some things change, but the parameters are still there. The bigotry is still there. If I can walk up in a department store or I can walk out in the mall and someone don't be following me around, I think that's when I know things has really changed. That was Ben, Uncle Anthony Thorpe, my mommy, Phyllis Jones, and Dr. Ben Chavis, all members of the Civil Rights Generation. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up on Weekend Edition Sunday, Jamie Lee Curtis discusses Halloween ends. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about the day's news. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Inuendo, covering Metro Boston windows for over 30 years with shades, blinds, draperies, and more. Inuendo's design team in Natick and Inuendo.com. And Hillside School for boys grades 4 through 9, offering unique programs from a working farm to outstanding athletics to a state-of-the-art innovation center on campus and virtual open house from 1 to 3 p.m. on Wednesday, October 19th. Hillside School. I'm Barbara Klein with these headlines. Chinese leader Xi Jinping delivered the opening address of China's Communist Party Congress today. He's seeking to cement support for a third term as the party's general secretary. Elon Musk says his rocket company SpaceX will continue to fund its Starlink Internet service in Ukraine after saying he could no longer afford to keep it going. He calls it a good deed. The U.S. and other governments contribute to Starlink. An outbreak of Ebola in Uganda has prompted President Yoweri Museveni to announce a lockdown in two districts. In a televised national address, Museveni imposed an overnight curfew, closed places of worship, and restricted movement. I'm Barbara Klein, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Harvard Business Review. For 100 years, a source for management thinking, partnering with business experts to publish classic concepts and emerging ideas. More at hbr.org NPR. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Montana is one of six states adding seats in the U.S. House of Representatives this year due to population growth. More voters identify as Republicans than Democrats, but the GOP candidate in this race has to live down his bumpy time in the Trump administration in order to win. Montana Public Radio's Shaylee Rager reports. You know him, you've known him, you've trusted him. Commander Ryan Zinke. At a campaign rally outside Bozeman this summer, Ryan Zinke, a retired Navy SEAL, painted himself as a patriotic champion of conservative priorities, like restricting immigration, amping up energy production, and cutting taxes. What are we going to do? We're not going to give him the flag, and we're not going to give him the Constitution, we're going to fight. Zinke previously won two races to represent Montana in the U.S. House, but left his last term early when former President Donald Trump tapped him to lead the Interior Department in 2017. But he quit Interior early, too, in the wake of 18 ethics investigations. This year, the Interior Department's Inspector General, a Trump appointee, released two reports that concluded Zinke lied to investigators on multiple occasions and used his office to advance a project of personal interest in Montana. Zinke brushes the investigations off as politically motivated. When you're going to want to get things done in Washington, D.C., and you actually want to push back against a bureaucracy, what we call the swamp, they don't like it. And that's exactly what happened. But there's evidence that Montana voters might not be buying that. Zinke only won the Republican primary here by a razor-thin margin. Jesse Benyon teaches political science at Montana State University. The close results of the primary probably made him kick it into higher gear on the campaign trail. Election analysts with Roll Call initially dubbed this race likely Republican, but recently updated it to leans Republican, meaning more competitive. Zinke's Democratic opponent is Monica Trinnell, an attorney who's worked on energy and agriculture issues in Montana for more than 20 years. I, I've been here. I've, I've been on the ground, in the trenches, with you, by your side, in our community, showing up. Montana hasn't elected a Democrat to the U.S. House since 1994, and Zinke has raised more than twice as much for the race. But Trinnell is winning endorsements from prominent Republicans, including a former governor, secretary of state, and the former chair of the state GOP. And there's a libertarian candidate in the race who could spell trouble for Zinke, says Montana State's Jesse Benyon. Even if he got a few percentage points, that in a close race... If Trinnell is gaining traction, that can produce upsets. We've seen that. For Zinke to win, he's going to need Republican voters to stay loyal, like Gerald Ryder, a retired National Park Service employee who was at the Bozeman rally. Ryan Zinke, as far as I am concerned, you know, he's a, he's a hero for Montana. You know, I mean, he served the country. He did it honorably. Not, there are hundreds of people trying to paint him in a different color, and I don't believe that. 
Zinke has Trump's endorsement. The former president won Montana by 16 points in the last election. This race is another test of Trump's political influence across the country. For NPR News, I'm Shaley Rager in Helena, Montana. In a rare move for a Southeast Asian country, Thailand has decriminalized cannabis, but suddenly and without much forethought. That's created a chaotic and unpredictable market. Later today on All Things Considered, what led the Thai government to reverse course and why one farmer still believes she can make more money selling avocados. Listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Today's high school seniors are one of a kind. For them, every year of high school has been touched by the pandemic. NPR's Meg Anderson talked to five seniors about what that's been like and what their hopes are for the year ahead. In many ways, the students I spoke with are just regular teenagers into all kinds of things. I recently got into baking. Overanalyzing films and scrutinizing them. Debate. Computer programming. Spoken word poetry. That's Julia Natalie Perez, Nathan Ferguson, Iksha Suba, Omar Abdelal, and Twyla Colburn. They talked to me from Omaha, Nebraska, Nashville, Tennessee, Dallas, Eastern Pennsylvania, and Portland, Oregon. The pandemic first hit when they were all in their freshman year. And for that reason, they told me, they feel like they've had a high school experience unlike any other. We are the only class who doesn't really know what it's like to go to high school in a sense. That's Twyla. Nathan says he can tell his experience has been different by talking with his older cousins. They had a pretty traditional high school experience. So it was something I couldn't really relate with them. For these students, the closest they got to that traditional high school experience was in 2019. Here's Omar, Iksha, and Twyla. Freshman year, as it started, I was sort of like a social butterfly. 2020, like January, February, I was kind of like finding myself and my group of people. There were all these things that were upcoming that I was excited for, and then everything pretty much just got canceled. Suddenly, they were back at home. They were remote learning for the rest of that year, and they stayed that way through their sophomore year, which didn't always go great. There were certain classes where I would find little sections to sleep through (laughs) while I had it going on in the speaker in the background. I was just absorbing it through my ears. (laughs) Maybe not music to Nathan's teacher's ears, but he says he was still able to keep up in those classes. Junior year, a lot of them went back. But after so much time learning at home, that was an adjustment too. Plus COVID. Here's Omar, Nathan, and Niksha. I didn't talk to anyone for basically a year in person. And going back to school, I didn't really know how to comprehend being in like a bigger environment. I'd find myself avoiding big crowds or at lunch, maybe sitting by myself at a table rather than to friends. A few of my teachers had to leave school. Like kids at my school would like randomly leave school. People were just like getting COVID left and right. Julia says the whole experience changed the way she interacts with the world. I've grown so much as a person because like, I'm more focused in school, but also outside of school, getting out of my bubble and trying new things. And for Twyla, it's made her want to take advantage of every opportunity. With us, I feel like there's a certain desire to compensate for everything that we've lost. She's in her school's band and they have to play at the football games. And I'm not personally someone who 
would normally go to a football game or want to go. But now more than ever, I've been much more looking forward to things that I wouldn't have looked forward to in freshman year just because it allows a chance to be part of the school community. In fact, all the students I spoke with were excited for the return of those classic high school traditions, the big ones and the small ones. Here's Nathan. They brought back the senior courtyard, which was actually banned for the past couple years, where seniors get to go outside and eat their lunch on picnic tables, which is super cool. They're also bringing back field trips, homecoming, all this stuff that we're missing from previous years. It feels like it's kind of all coming together. Still, for Iksha, after the last few years, it's been hard to get all that excited about high school. High school used to be like a big deal for me in middle school, but I feel like I don't really feel that connected to my school. Right now, it's just a place I go to study to get my education. She called her experience bittersweet, and she's hoping college will be different. Twyla thinks it will be. She's hopeful for what her class can accomplish, not in spite of the pandemic, but because of it. These past few years have shown us that there's nothing that is out of reach for the class of 2023. We can get through things that have been unprecedented for generations, still while juggling all the difficulties of high school. And I think that is just incredible. For now, they're focused on enjoying their last and sort of first full year of high school. Meg Anderson, NPR News. You could say Germa985 is something of a performance artist. He creates huge, elaborate, surreal productions complete with cast and crew, and it's all streaming live for hundreds of thousands of viewers on Twitch. NPR's Alex Chung takes us inside Germa's latest inside late takes us inside Germa's latest big show, a baseball game between clowns and magicians, to ask how, and more importantly, why. Welcome to Car Shield Field, where we have Germa Baseball Association at a baseball stadium in suburban St. Louis. Big time matchup between the California Circus and the Maryland Magicians. A team of clowns in full face makeup and baseball uniforms runs out onto the field. Those clowns played a four-hour game of baseball in real time against the magicians in the opposing dugout, and tens of thousands of viewers tuned into the live stream on Twitch. There were breathtaking acrobatic displays. Actually, we've got three outfielders unicycling currently. First ball. Even the umpire himself stepped up to the plate. Umpires about to enter this game for California. That umpire was the mastermind behind the whole show, Jeremy Albertson better known as the streamer German 985 But I'm just, you know, calling balls and strikes and doing all these wacky things. I'm just, in my mind, I'm going, I hope this is funny. I hope this is funny. I hope this is funny. To create this high production fantasy world, Germa had to hire real baseball players, real circus performers, and actors from across the country who wanted to play make-believe. He gave his cast an outline of the baseball game, along with pages and pages of gags he'd come up with. But he let them make decisions on the fly. It's like a live comedy improv show. And Germa says the real key is his relationship with his streaming audience on Twitch. I'm coming up with a scenario that I think is a fun time for everybody. That's all I care about. Cecilia D'Anastasio covers the video game industry for Bloomberg. She says these big performance arty shows are unusual for Twitch. What Twitch's bread and butter is, is a streamer going about their life quite casually and playing video games and just chatting with their fan bases. So why does Germa do these shows on Twitch instead of making a movie or a TV show? Well, for one, the liveness of the platform creates a unique sense of unreality. 
And of course, money is always a consideration. Movies are expensive, way more expensive than trying to get a bunch of people together to do a show on Twitch for a few hours. Germa studied communications and video production in college. Then about a decade ago, he started messing around on YouTube. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode one of Germacraft. Several years later, he switched his focus to Twitch. He mostly streamed normal gaming stuff, which he still does plenty of, but he also tried a couple of small, outside-the-box experiments, like hooking himself up to a lie detector to answer questions from viewers, or... I hired a fake family to come be my family at a family dinner. Germa built a team of collaborators, some from his tight-knit viewer community, and together they started staging bigger and bigger events. Things hit a high point in August of 2021 with the German 985 Dollhouse stream. Imagine a live-action version of the video game The Sims, on a soundstage with a big cast and crew, and starring, of course, Germa. The, the nature of that whole show was, I'm a person in a house. You get to decide what I get to do. Over three days of streams, Germa's viewers made him simulate eating, sleeping. They even made him fight a bear. You want me to do what? Or at least a guy in a bear costume. The show was a smash hit. The third day of the dollhouse peaked at over 100,000 concurrent viewers. That's a lot for Twitch. Cecilia de Anastasio at Bloomberg says popular streamers can make good money on the platform. Subscriptions, donations from fans, advertising, sponsorship deals. But Germa's big shows are way more expensive than sitting in a gamer chair playing Elden Ring. They may not be on the scale of a movie, but Germa says some of his productions can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So he has to find big money sponsors for his events. It can be a real challenge trying to convince a team of marketing people, hey, so there's this idea, it's gonna cost a lot of money and it's gonna be really fun, don't you think? And some big sponsors are seeing the potential. Germa says the shows are paying for themselves. For the Dollhouse stream, Coinbase chipped in and Germa found new sponsors for the baseball stream. Here's Don Anastasio again. It's not that the streaming space is maturing, it's that it has matured. But even if Germa's big shows are making money now, he knows there are no guarantees in the world of live streaming. Nobody really knows how long this is going to last. Does this evolve and become even larger than it is now? Or does it go bust at some point? Why fight for a vision that's so hard to explain and even harder to realize? Like making clowns brawl with magicians on a baseball diamond. Oh boy, this is utter chaos. Why not? It sounds like fun, and it seems like something that could make a lot of people happy, so I'm going to do it. Alex Chung, NPR News. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Exercise after COVID is frustrating for a lot of people and can be difficult for those with long COVID. A new study from the University of California, San Francisco, looked at how this condition affects the ability of people to exercise. One takeaway, long COVID can dramatically reduce someone's capacity for physical activity. Joining me now is the co-author of this study, Dr. Matthew Durstenfeld. Good morning. Good morning, Aisha. Thank you for having me dramatically reduce? Like, t tell us what that means. Our study pooled together a lot of different studies that, that researchers have done looking at exercise in long COVID. And on average, we found a decrease of five milliliters per kilogram per minute. What that means is participants are exercising uh, at the level they would a decade later in life. 
So a decade later in life, like when you say that, you mean that if you are 40, you will be exercising like you 50 on average. That's what you're finding. Exactly right. What are the mechanics of that? Like what is happening to the body that would cause something that dramatic? What we found was that there were a lot of different mechanisms. Some of it is due to deconditioning, um, decreased exercise from being sick. But there's a lot of other things going on, and deconditioning definitely doesn't explain it all. Okay. And, and so deconditioning means, as you said, it's you, you haven't been exercising because you're ill, and so then your body has to get back used to, to activity. That's right. If it was all deconditioning, we could just advise people to exercise more. But we found other things like decreases in oxygen in the muscles, uh, decrease in heart rate during exercise, and dysfunctional breathing. Do researchers have any idea how long it would take for someone to, to fully get back to pre-COVID fitness levels? I mean, when you start talking about losing a decade of your fitness capacity, um, that sounds so serious. Well, it is important that it's an average. So if some people don't experience any decrease in exercise capacity and other people experience a really profound decrease that really is debilitating. I think that another important point from the, these studies that we included is that they're all cross-sectional except for two. So they didn't really look at how things change over time. And the two that did found that their exercise capacity did not return to normal when they repeated the studies months later. That doesn't sound good. So looking at these studies, obviously more studies probably need to be done. You're not seeing people get back to their pre-COVID fitness levels on average. Right. I think uh, we still need to know what, what happens to people. Do they get better on their own or do they need some specific treatment for long COVID? We still don't have any treatments for long COVID. And so we really need to understand what's going wrong that's causing it in order to identify potential treatments to help people. COVID is, is such a confounding disease. There's so much we still don't know about it. Like, What do you think doctors and people who get COVID should take away from your team's findings? I think one is that uh, decrease in exercise capacity is real and it can be objectively measured. And there's a lot of different reasons why someone could have decreased exercise capacity after COVID. And so for some people who that's a real issue for, it might be worth doing exercise testing in discussion with your doctor. That's Dr. Matthew Durstenfeld with the University of California, San Francisco, talking about exercise and COVID. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. In Waltham this morning, more than 100 Eversource customers are still without power. That's after a series of electrical surges throughout the city yesterday afternoon. The surges provoked transformer fires and other problems. Eversource says it is still trying to figure out the exact cause of the electrical troubles. Tomorrow is the deadline for companies planning to apply for a sports betting license to submit their scoping surveys to the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. The surveys are meant to help the Investigations and Enforcement Bureau begin to identify the focus of background investigations. In sports this afternoon in Cleveland, the Patriots play the Browns. It's 57 degrees in Boston, increasing clouds today, and highs reaching the mid-60s. 
This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus, committed to creating an office space where talent wants to work. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise. Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. Support for NPR comes from this station and from ProQuest, whose website, Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S., curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights. Open to all at ProQuest.com go slash Black Freedom. From the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. As we mentioned elsewhere in the program, a fatal fire broke out in a notorious prison in Iran where hundreds of dissidents and political prisoners are housed. The fire took place against the backdrop of ongoing anti-government protests throughout the country. Though a Tehran prosecutor said the two were not related. Those protests began five weeks ago when a 22-year-old woman died while in the custody of the country's morality police. And the protests in her home province of Kurdistan have been intense. So, too, has the government's crackdown. We have been in contact with a protester in Sanandaj. That's the capital of the Kurdistan province. We'll identify her only by the first initial of her name, D, to protect her safety. D sent us an audio diary of sorts, voice memos, in response to our questions, as well as footage from the streets of our city. The 25-year-old says in recent days, attacks on protesters have escalated. D says people are being shot at directly. She sent us videos of these clashes. A warning to listeners, this report includes sounds of gunfire. She describes seeing security forces use live rounds, tear gas, and water cannons on families running errands. She says she'll never forget the screams of terrified children. D says injured protesters who go to the hospitals aren't being treated. They're being turned over to the police. So those who have been injured, she said, are afraid to seek treatment. She notes that over 8,000 have been arrested, including teens. One video she sent has a woman screaming that they are being tear gassed. Dee says she'll never forget the cries of protesters being drowned out by gunfire. 
and how the government tried to isolate them from the world by cutting off internet access, but she said the people will not be silenced. She goes on to explain that in Kurdistan, people are not only fighting for justice for Amini, whose death kicked off these protests, they are also calling for an end to the injustices minority Kurds suffer in Iran. In Kurdistan, says D, we don't have the right to speak in our own mother tongue, Kurdish. Speaking our language or teaching it poses a security threat to us. D also breaks down what she says is poverty by design there. There's no industry in her town, she says, where even the highly educated have to resort to menial labor and unemployment drives people away. She lists what the Kurds want the right to educate their youth in their native tongue. They want the systematic impoverishment of Kurdistan to stop. They want freedom of speech. They want self-determination and so much more. Those are the words of D, one Kurdish protester who is part of a large, diverse set of protests taking root in Iran. If you love having a fresh set of sneakers, chances are you've used Nike's sneakers app. It lets sneakerheads join drawings to buy the company's latest designs. But recently, customers have had complaints. Resellers. They deploy bots or fake automated accounts to scoop up all the shoes, forcing many customers to pay double or triple the retail price. But all that could be about to change. To tell us more about it, we turn to Mike Sykes II. He writes the Kicks You Wear newsletter and is a staff writer for USA Today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So Nike has made an announcement about these bots. Like, why is this such a big deal for people who love sneakers? Right. So what's going on is Nike has updated their terms of sale agreement with the consumers to include these anti-bot regulations. So they're allowing themselves to cancel orders, charge restock fees, limit purchase quantities of all these different sneakers that you see on like the sneakers app or even on Nike.com or the Nike app sometimes so that the consumers who actually just want to wear the shoes and not resell them have a better chance of getting them while, you know, the resellers are doing what they do. Can you explain how these drawings work like, and why they can be so frustrating for the average customer? So the sneakers app is something that sneakerheads use pretty much every weekend and even throughout the week to go after these limited releases that Nike will release. They all come in limited quantities. And so you have to enter into these drawings to literally have a chance to purchase the shoe. So, you know, like with a normal raffle, maybe you would have a chance to, you know, win the shoe for free. But in the sneakers world, you get a chance to actually buy it and spend your money, which is which is kind of <laughs> weird, but that's okay. how it works. And so do you have personal experience of like really wanting a pair of sneakers and not being able to get them? Oh, do I? <laughs> I mean, pretty much every single weekend. I mean, this is kind of how it goes. sneakers every weekend? Because some people might not look. My sister is a sneaker head. She used to, you know, wait in line all night at Foot Locker, et cetera, to get sneakers. Yeah. But are you buying sneakers every weekend? Aisha, I, I'm <laughs> buying sneakers constantly. Or I'm trying to. That, and that's the thing, right? It's like 
there are times when you'll get them, but more often than not, you're not actually buying these sneakers. You're just trying to do it. It's it's almost like a game. Yeah. And these resellers, when they get the shoes, they mark up the price. So if you try to get them from the reseller and not from the Nike app, you're paying, how much more are you paying? So there are times when, you know, you can go to these resale apps like StockX or eBay or, or Goat or whatever. And generally speaking, you're going to find at least two to three times more. So how will this bot crackdown work, like behind the scenes? So I'm guessing that Nike probably has some proprietary technology that they're using to go through these orders and cancel the ones that have these automated purchases. And that's something that other retailers have done before. It's something that we see a lot with particularly these boutiques that use Shopify. But for Nike, it should be relatively easy, which is why a lot of people have been frustrated that it took them so long to actually do something like this. So why is Nike choosing to act now? I'm a cynic at heart, right? Now, I, I think that this is sort of self-serving to Nike. Now, Nike is claiming that, you know, they just want to get the shoes into the hands of the end consumer, the consumer that wants to wear these shoes, which is great. Like, that's what people have been asking for for years. But Nike's also in this situation now where they're sitting on a bunch of unpurchased inventory right now. And some of that inventory is coming from these returns that these resellers are making because the resale market has cooled off. They want people to act actually buy the shoes and keep them so that that inventory number goes down. And I think this is a big part of that. That's Mike Sykes, the second author of the Kicks You Wear newsletter. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Two names come to mind when you hear that music, Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. And the final installment of this classic slasher franchise, Halloween Ends, brings the two iconic figures back together for one last fight. Laurie Strode, who is played by none other than Jamie Lee Curtis, puts down roots with her granddaughter in the very town she first encountered the serial killer. She's working on her memoir when she finds old patterns repeating themselves, oh no, <laughs> and decides she has to take matters into her own hands. Jamie Lee Curtis joins us now from our studios in Culver City. Welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here with you, Aisha Roscoe. So talk about like the end of an era, Laurie Strode, that's your first big yeah. role. No, my first movie. How does it feel to say goodbye to a character in a story that has been with you throughout your entire career? You know, I don't I look at it less as a goodbye. I look at it a lot more as a thank you. That role gave me my life. It gave me a creative life. Uh, I I ultimately met my husband somehow through a connection to Halloween and it gave me a, a sort of a platform as a young actor to stand on. Mm. This is like a, a revamp of the series. There was one version of the series in which you died. And the thing about these movies, nobody's ever really dead. They can always come back. Like, is it really over? Am I really dead? Nice <laughs> for giving away the ending of the movie. We will cut that. Oh, you don't have to cut anything, Aisha Roscoe. Um, people will understand that that was not a spoiler alert. Maybe. It's not a spoiler. Maybe. But what's important is this. Um, I'm great, but I'm also 
64 years old, and every story needs to come to an end. That's the beautiful mm -hmm. part of storytelling. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then what's great for me is that it's really a beginning of a whole creative world that I get to now do because of the success of Laurie Strode in the Halloween movies. You're closing a chapter with this Michael Myers yes. film, but the fans watching, they get to watch this battle between Lori yes. and Michael Myers yes. one more time. Yes, it is, a, it is an inevitable <laughs> collision. Yes. What was it like for you filming those scenes? My only job as an actor is to tell the truth. You have to believe in that moment that things are not okay, that things are out of control, that that battle is real. Mm. One involves a garbage disposal. Now, oh, yeah, I, that was. I, I don't know how many of you have ever dropped something down a garbage disposal <laughs> and put your hand in it, wondering is there possibly going to be a power surge? <laughs> it's just, even though you know it's off, it's off. But if it's, it's always but in your if back it's of your mind, on, yeah. if it's yeah. actually on and someone else is putting your hand down a garbage disposal, I know the reaction because I've been in very crowded movie theaters and have seen the reaction. Yes, um, people lose their minds. Yeah, yeah. You also talk in the movie, and this is what Lori says, is that there's different types of evil. Mm -hmm. There's this evil that's external and a threat to the community. And then there's this evil that's internal, and it's like an infection that mm -hmm. spreads. Like, which do you think is the most dangerous? Yeah, but what happens uh, in a community is that it is an infection. Um, victim shaming is an infection. Um, they are not personally responsible. What's happened in Haddonfield is the entire community is now poisoned. The last movie was the community rising up saying that the system is broken, and now the community is broken. You are like definitely an icon in the horror space. The landscape of horror is changing, though. Yes. Like, you know, I mean, it's going away from, you know, traditional gore and really monsters who I loved, you know, Freddy Krueger. Mm -hmm. They're more like psychological, more mm -hmm. based in real life. Like, what do you make of that shift? Yeah. Unfortunately, um, I am not a fan of the genre. On <laughs> you, any, don't on, you don't watch it. On any level. The only thing I know is what my friend Michael Moses, who runs the marketing at Universal, said. He said, horror lets us confront what we can't control. Yes. So the new horror is, I think, just a metabolization of this life we now live through AI and technology and these things that we can't control, which is mm. uh, the very thing that we use every day. You know, but. I understand you want old-fashioned monsters and that you're into in, because <laughs> they're into because they're tangible. They are. They are. It's a controlled environment. Mm -hmm. You get to be scared, but you know that it's not real and it's not really going to get you, right? So, the way I knew that John Carpenter and Deborah Hill had done something. I went and saw that movie at its you know, pretty much the highest mm. point. And mm. it was in a crowded movie theater. I had asked John Carpenter, I was like, you know, t talk to me about Laurie Strode. And he said, I just want her to be vulnerable. And when I was 19, 
I don't even know if I could spell vulnerable. And what happened was I was in this crowded theater, and then there's the sequence where her friend is across the street and she's being murdered. And yeah. she calls and Lori hears something. She hears something that's strange. Lori checks on the kids and then leaves the house and walks across the street. And it's a very long walk across mm -hmm. the street. You're looking at the house, you're looking at Lori, you're looking at the house, you're looking at Lori, you're looking at the house, you're looking at Lori. And in the middle of that long walk, a woman stood up in the middle of the theater in Hollywood and screamed out loud, and I won't scream into your radio, yes. don't go in there, there's a killer in that house. Uh. And in that moment, I understood what the word vulnerability meant. Yeah. And in that moment, I understood what John and Deborah had created. Like mm -hmm. you knew once she went in that house, there was going to be a collision between good and yeah. evil. And yeah. that to me, I think, explains your love of your bad boys. <laughs> yes. Why you like that? I understand it's a controlled environment. I get it. I get it. I get it. A jump scares, you know, don't, yeah. don't jump scare Jamie. I'm, I'm, not, I'm <laughs> You're hashtag, not hashtag, don't jump scare Jamie. Jamie Lee Curtis in the new and final film final. in the Halloween series. She says it's final. Halloween ends. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, you are a wonderful person, and I hope you understand how many people listen to you and admire you. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. BJ Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. It's 57 degrees in Boston. Highs today in the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Hillside School for Boys, grades 4 through 9, offering unique programs from a working farm to outstanding athletics to a state-of-the-art innovation center. On campus and virtual open house from 1 to 3 p.m. on Wednesday, October 19th, hillsideschool.net. And Arts Emerson's Drum Folk. They took away the drums, but they could not stop the beat. Through today at the Cutler Majestic Theater, artsemerson.org. When your fast food cashier is just a face on a screen, don't bother asking them about how the menu items taste. I'm in another country, so I can't try them. This week on Planet Money, bold experiments in outsourcing food service jobs. And on How I Built This, 
Guy Raz talks to the creator of the hit YouTube channel, Babish Culinary Universe. That's coming up on the next Planet Money and How I Built This from NPR. Today at 3 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. President Biden made a trip to Oregon this weekend. Find out why the president felt the need to visit this Democratic stronghold ahead of the midterms. And China's Communist Party is picking its leader. China's President Xi Jinping is hoping to solidify his power. Plus, thumbs up, thumbs down. Kids these days are always trying to tell us what emojis to use and not to use. What's up with that? There's an unspoken subtlety to what the characters mean. That, like, it's up to every person to sort of interpret that, and people do it differently. It's Sunday, October 16th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Barbara Klein. Chinese leader Xi Jinping delivered the opening address of the Chinese Communist Party Congress today, seeking to cement support for a third term as the party's general secretary, as heard here through an interpreter. Confronted with drastic changes in the international landscape, we have maintained firm strategic resolve and shown a fighting spirit. She also vowed China's unswerving desire to control Taiwan. He called for speeding up the country's military development and professed ongoing support for the country's strict COVID policies, which have battered the Chinese economy. Russia has opened a criminal investigation into yesterday's attack at a military training ground near the border with Ukraine. At least 11 people were killed, 15 were wounded. NPR's Charles Maines has more from Moscow. The incident occurred during a firearms training session for newly mobilized forces in Russia's Belgorod region. According to Russia's defense ministry, two gunmen, reportedly from a former Soviet republic, began shooting at training soldiers before the attackers were killed in retaliatory fire. The ministry labeled the incident a terrorist attack. Belgorod's regional governor issued a statement saying the injured were receiving care at local hospitals. The incident was the latest setback for a Kremlin mobilization drive to send 300,000 additional Russian troops to fight in Ukraine. The draft announcement has been met with public protests as well as several attacks on recruitment centers amid reports draft papers were being issued indiscriminately. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Investors will learn more this week about the U.S. housing market and the state of manufacturing. NPR's Scott Horsley has a preview. On Tuesday, we'll learn how factories performed in September following a slight uptick in manufacturing production in August. Rising interest rates have been weighing on the housing market. Mortgage giant Freddie Mac says the average rate on a 30-year fixed home loan is now close to 7 percent. A year ago, it was less than half that. 
On Wednesday, we'll learn how that's affecting new home construction. We'll also get a report this coming week on September's sales of existing homes. August home sales were down almost 20 percent from a year ago. Falling home sales have also contributed to a drop in demand for furniture, appliances, and garden supplies. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The U.S. and Canadian militaries have airlifted security equipment to Haiti, including armored vehicles, to help Haitian police battle gangs that now control much of the country. Businesses, schools, and hospitals are closed. Some Haitians are facing a famine, and gasoline distribution is being blocked. Haiti's government is also asking for foreign troops. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Negotiators for Haverhill Teachers and the city are due back at the bargaining table this hour as they try to avoid a possible strike tomorrow. Both sides met for several hours yesterday without reaching an agreement. Teachers are demanding higher pay and better working conditions. Negotiators for the city say any strike would be illegal and say the teachers union in Haverhill is seeking twice the pay that teachers in Boston recently agreed to in their contract. Teachers in Malden are also threatening to strike tomorrow unless progress is made on a new contract. Negotiations between their union and the city were set to begin last hour. Bunker Hill Community College wants to make over its campus, and school officials hope it will cost the state little to no money. The Boston Globe reports school officials are exploring a partnership with a private developer. Under the plan, Bunker Hill would get new buildings and a more modern campus, but its overall footprint would get smaller. In return, the developer could build on the rest of the property. A public hearing on the matter is set for Thursday. The state's Asset Management Board could vote on the plan next month. One person is under arrest after four people were stabbed early this morning in Boston. That happened just after 2 a.m. near the intersection of Stewart and Tremont Streets. All four stabbing victims are expected to survive. The suspect's name has not been released. It is unclear if the suspect is responsible for all four stabbings. The town of Milton is suing the MBTA for failing to fix a staircase that's been closed for a decade. The Boston Herald says the complaint was filed in Norfolk Superior Court on Friday. The staircase previously had connected Adams Street to the Mattapan trolley line. The town wants the staircase fixed and reopened. The T says the staircase eventually will be torn down as part of a larger project to replace the entire Milton station. In sports this afternoon in Cleveland, the Patriots play the Browns. In the forecast, increasing clouds today, highs in the mid-60s, lows in the mid-40s overnight, and then some showers tomorrow with temperatures in the low 60s. This is We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thank you for joining us. President Biden made his second visit to Oregon this year, even though it's not usually considered a battleground state. That's because an unusual three-way race for the state's governor is endangering the Democrats' customary hold on the office. Joining us to talk politics as she does most Sunday mornings is NPR national political correspondent Mara Liason. Good morning, Mara. 
Good morning, Aisha. So the president stopped off at a couple of campaign events for the Democratic candidate, Tina Kotek. What a governor does matters. It matters. It matters, it matters, it matters. So what's going on there that's so important that brought Biden out? Yeah, well, that's a good question. As you said, Oregon wasn't really on anyone's radar screen until recently. It's a reliably blue state. Democrats have held the governor's mansion there for decades. But this is a three-way race. Three-way races are very unpredictable. There's a Democrat turned independent who's running as the third-party candidate. And uh, she is expected to siphon off votes from the Democratic candidate, possibly letting the Republican candidate win. And Biden hasn't been doing a lot of big rallies, but he has been doing a lot of fundraisers. And uh, Democrats don't want to take this one for granted. And later this week, Biden's planning on traveling to Pennsylvania to host a fundraiser for the Democratic Senate candidate there, John Fetterman. How key is that race? Very key. The Senate battleground, you could argue, has shrunk to three states, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Georgia, which, assuming no other seats change hands, whichever party wins two of those states will control the Senate majority in January. And on uh, Friday night, you had the debate between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker in Georgia. Georgia is considered one of the closest of those three states, although some polls show the Democrat ahead. In Nevada, the Senate race there is considered the best pickup possibility for Republicans. Nevada has uh, been trending blue, but that state has been hit the hardest by the economic downturn around COVID since they rely so much on tourism. And in Pennsylvania, the Senate race is considered the best pickup opportunity for Democrats. It's an open seat. The Republican retired. Uh, you've got John Fetterman, the lieutenant governor, running there. Uh, he had a stroke. That's something Republicans are talking about a lot. He's running against the Trump-endorsed uh, celebrity TV doctor Mehmet Oz, who's actually from has a residence in New Jersey, which Democrats talk about a lot. Uh, but that is very, very key to getting the majority in January. So uh, Democrats in the House of Representatives, they have an eight-vote majority. But for months and months, pundits have been predicting they will lose control to the Republicans. Is that still the case? I think so. But what's changed is that if the weather report for Democrats a couple months ago was cloudy with a chance of a tsunami, the red wave has really changed and it's more of a gushing stream. And Democrats have succeeded to a certain extent in changing this race from a referendum on the party in power to a choice between Democrats and Republicans. It might not be enough to let them keep the majority in the House, but the Republicans might end up with a smaller margin of seats than they would have otherwise. And, and, you know, we often don't talk enough about state legislatures, but over the past 15 years, Republicans have really focused their efforts on taking control of those chambers. Are Democrats beginning to, to wake up to how important those races are? Well, I think Democrats have woken up for quite a while. It's just that even though they've been trying for the last couple of cycles to put more attention and money into state legislative races, they have really gotten very poor results. They lost a thousand seats nationally during Obama's presidency. And right now, the problem for Democrats is that Republicans control about two thirds of the legislative chambers in the states. And that's extremely important for several reasons. Number one is redistricting. We just saw that uh, Republicans had the 
advantage in the redistricting after the 2020 Senate, not just for congressional districts, but also for state legislative districts. In many states, Republicans can get fewer votes statewide, but still end up with big majorities of legislative seats. The second reason is abortion. After Roe was overturned, state legislatures now have the power to set abortion law. And the third reason is that there's a case before the Supreme Court, which you and I have talked about before, that would allow state legislatures to have unchecked power over counting and certifying votes in federal elections. That was NPR's Mara Liason. Thank you so much, Mara. You're welcome. In Beijing today, an important political meeting got underway, a Communist Party Congress. These meetings happen once every five years, and they mean a lot in China's top-down political system. This one is expected to cement Xi Jinping's role as the country's undisputed leader. To help explain it all, we are joined by NPR's John Ruich, who's in Beijing covering the event. Welcome, John. Hey, Aisha. So, John, I understand you were at the opening of the Congress earlier today. What was that like? Yeah, it's really something else. You know, about 2,300 delegates from around the country gathered today at the Great Hall of the People, which is this massive, massive marble building on the western side of Tiananmen Square. And it was an event that was really full of pomp and circumstance. Uh, Here's a little bit of color for you. So that's a military brass band playing marching music and officials, all these delegates clapping in time while the country's leaders walked onto stage with a backdrop of these huge red flags and a giant hammer and sickle. Um, The main event today, though, was this two-hour speech by Xi Jinping. He talked uh, about the achievements that the party has made over the last last five and ten years, Um, and he outlined in broad brushstrokes what sort of the policy priorities and guiding principles will be for the party in the coming few years. So what were some of those priorities and principles that he, you know, discussed? Yeah. In a way, I think she was kind of making a case. His case is really that, you know, China's faced a lot of challenges at home and on the global stage. It's making strides towards what he calls the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. That's almost within reach, but it's not there yet. And and the country really needs the party, the Communist Party, to get there. He pledged investment in education and science and technology. He said the party should strengthen the military, consolidate China's leading position in certain strategic industries, for instance, promote innovation, those type of things. But again, he was pretty clear the Communist Party needs to be in control. And it went on said that that means that, you know, it's it's he who's going to be leading the party. Uh, unity is key, he said. That means no divisions. Um, and China's at a historic opportunity, really, as Xi Jinping sees it. It, it. it faces risks. He mentioned security dozens of times in this speech, national security, political security, economic security, food security, which really highlights his concerns as the leader. Um, and it was interesting. His biggest applause, though, came when he talked about Taiwan. He reiterated that, you know, China is not going to renounce the use of force, if necessary, to seize the island. So he says, you know, the wheels of history are rolling toward China's reunification with Taiwan. And he says that's something that must be realized. You know, at the top, we mentioned that Xi Jinping might get another term as party chief. Why would that be significant? You know, a lot of people listening will think, oh, isn't he already the leader for life? Yeah, good point. He's been the leader for a while. He 
Power transitions, right, in authoritarian systems like this have historically been dangerous and destabilizing times. And there had been this sort of sense, or maybe it was more of a hope, that China had figured it out, right? The, the leaders before Xi, um, Hu Jintao, Jiang Zemin, passed power peacefully from one to the other. It was sort of institutionalized. But Xi, so far, you know, has cast questions over that, his, his staying on. Uh, you know, he's all in on this idea that China needs strong leadership, a strong man to sort of avoid the fate of the Soviet Union and ultimately become what he calls a Qianguo, a strong country. He mentioned that term a lot in the speech. Um, and in terms of policy going forward, you know, the expectation is for continuity, but continuity uh, backed by sort of a stronger mandate. You know, he's cracked down very hard on dissent. He eviscerated what little civil society had existed in China. Um, and the country's taken a much bolder posture on the international stage. Again, also, China's controversial, very tough COVID controls are closely associated with Xi Jinping. And in the speech, he said those measures had saved lives and he gave no hints that they were reconsidering it. So uh, in the 30 seconds we have left, what comes next? Well, there's a couple things to watch. Later this week, there will be amendments to the party constitution. It's quite arcane, but some of the wording uh, could put Xi up on sort of a higher pedestal as a leader. And then later in the week, the uh, party Congress will select a new central committee, which are the top leaders. And we'll know with a, the final leadership lineup next Sunday. NPR's John Ruich is in Beijing. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. Earlier this month, police in Northern California warned about a potential serial killer after a string of shootings and asked the public for help. Yesterday, Stockton Police Chief Stanley McFadden announced that a 43-year-old man was taken into custody thanks to a slew of tips and police work. We watched his patterns and determined he was on a mission to kill. He was out hunting. We are sure we stopped another killing. Five men were ambushed and killed in Stockton between July and September, each at night or in the early morning hours while walking or sitting in a parked car. Two earlier shootings are linked to those cases, including a woman who was sleeping in a tent when she was attacked. She survived. Investigators were able to zero in on the suspect after receiving hundreds of tips from the public. Chief McFadden said a surveillance team followed the man's car. They noticed that he was heading to parks and dark places, stopping and looking around before driving on. He was wearing dark clothing, had a mask around his neck, and had a firearm when he was arrested. And authorities are now trying to determine a motive for the attacks. Listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018. And you can stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Just listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. 
the MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Flavorful modern Latin American fare, catering office holiday parties and gatherings in greater Boston, lacuchara.com. I'm Barbara Klein with these headlines. Chinese leader Xi Jinping says China is still committed to taking control of Taiwan. In the opening speech to the Chinese Communist Party delegates, Xi also called for faster military development. The U.S. and Canadian militaries have airlifted security equipment to Haiti, including armored vehicles, to help Haitian police battle gangs that now control much of the country. Baseball's National League Championship Series is now set. The San Diego Padres and the Philadelphia Phillies will play the first game of the best-of-seven series on Tuesday. Both the Padres and Phillies pulled upsets yesterday to reach the championship series. I'm Barbara Klein, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Rupert Murdoch split his media empire up nearly a decade ago. Now he's considering unifying News Corp and Fox Corp once more. A possible deal is being evaluated by the boards of both companies. If they do merge, it would represent a dramatic and unexpected reversal. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick has covered Rupert Murdoch for many years, and he joins us now. Welcome. Hey. So, David, back in 2013, Rupert Murdoch said the two companies were better off being split apart. What was the rationale back then? Well, let's acknowledge the properties involved. On the print side, you got the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, in the UK, the Times of London, the Sun tabloid, and a bunch of things in Australia. And of course, on the broadcast side, you have the most important element, Fox News, uh, the TV stations, Fox Sports. And at the time, they also had the Fox uh, Hollywood uh, holdings. They wanted to unlock the value of broadcast. And this became a trend in the industry. You saw Gannett splitting itself apart. You saw Tribune splitting itself on the print side, the newspaper side, and the TV side. And there was this effort to say, let's separate it. The TV sides are going to flourish. But there was also the unstated current of concern. There had been this huge uh, scandal involving the British tabloids hacking into the voicemails and cell phones and emails and a lot of other things of just scores of people in the UK. And there was still the concern that the Murdochs might be investigated in the US for that, for bribery and Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations. And by splitting it apart, it would have protected the TV properties, the most profitable part of it, from any investigations of what had gone awry on the newspaper side. So is there a financial imperative to join these two back together now? Well, 
I don't think there's any great financial imperatives. Certainly, the newspaper side has kind of stabilized a bit. You've seen some real hits being taken in the UK, uh, in Australia, and on the New York Post side. But the Wall Street Journal, most important title has stabilized. And and with digital subscriptions, they've done pretty well. You know, there's also this big ticket cloud over uh, the Murdochs with uh, these multi-billion dollar lawsuits filed by these two election software companies over these lies that were spread on Fox News immediately in the wake of the 2020 presidential elections. And we'll see how those defamation lawsuits play out. But I don't think that really affects one way or another whether or not financially this makes huge sense. They just say there's a lot of synergies to be gotten from these two halves that were split apart and could come back together. Always looking for those synergies. Right, uh, right. <laughs> Rupert Murdoch's son, Lachlan, is the executive chairman of Fox Corp and Rupert's designated successor. Um, he said back in 2019 that Fox Corp would not buy News Corp. So, so what changed? Well, technically, this would be a stock swap, right? So it's structured a bit differently. They, they would argue the landscape's a little clearer. You know, Fox Corp is stripped down in 2018. You know, they had this great deal with Disney where they sold off most of their Hollywood holdings. They ended up selling a huge satellite property in the UK to, to Comcast. And Fox is now making money in streaming with Tubi, an advertising-driven property. But let's be honest, this is really kind of inevitable that Rupert Murdoch would want to unify these two halves of his empire if he could. Now it looks like he can. So, so let's talk a bit more about succession. That's a word we hear a <laughs> lot on TV and elsewhere. Uh, Murdoch is 91 years old. So h- how does this play out? Well, assuming it goes through, you'd see Lachlan Murdoch, his elder son, consolidate uh, control. Uh, Robert Thompson, who's the head of News Corp, a confidant, Australian newspaper man, longtime uh, friend of Rupert Murdoch, would almost certainly step down in the near future. And then there's the question of when Rupert goes. Three of the other adult kids have equal votes with Lachlan in deciding on the family trust of what happens. But in the immediate future, what does it mean? It means you'd have Rupert Murdoch back in the saddle of a consolidated empire, undaunted, as though the scandal at the UK tabloids never happened. Perhaps, perhaps you would see, you know, Murdoch once more at the head of his media empire as his final chapter in corporate life. That's NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick. David, thank you so very much. You bet. Some Americans intentionally plunge into near poverty in order to qualify for Medicaid because its coverage is more comprehensive than what they can get through other means. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, hear why one woman decided to do just that so that her daughter could get the care she needed. Listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Most Ukrainian refugees fleeing the conflict in their country have ended up elsewhere in Europe, but some have traveled much further, even as far as South America. Jill Langua has this report from the city of Prudentopolis in southern Brazil. Cupola-top churches and wooden homes painted in pastels dot the streets of Prudentopolis in southern Brazil. And if you look closely, the signs on storefronts are written in both Portuguese and Ukrainian. Residents still make the popular Ukrainian Easter eggs, known as pisanka, and the town's Ukrainian dance troupe is known worldwide. Ukrainian migrants settled the rural town over 100 years ago, when they came to Brazil with the promise of having fertile land to farm. Many in Brazil refer to the town of over 50,000 as Little Ukraine, but in recent months, 
Prudentopolis has become more than a cultural curiosity. It's become a safe haven for Ukrainian families fleeing war. It was really difficult. I had to leave my home behind. It was all we had. Among them are Larisa Moskvichova and her three daughters, Anastasia, Sofia and Ruslana. After sheltering from bombs for a week in a central bedroom in their duplex in Kharkiv, and another two days in a cellar with temperatures as low as minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit, Larissa knew there was no choice but to run. We had half an hour to grab everything we could, pack our bags, and run. All I could think of were my girls. I got all of their things and forgot about myself. I didn't even take my clothes. Larissa didn't know where to turn. She piled her girls into the car and headed toward Poltava, a Ukrainian city the fighting hadn't yet reached. There, she met a pastor helping Ukrainian families find safe places to start over through the Global Kingdom Partnership Network. Days later, he sent a message over WhatsApp asking who wanted to go to Brazil. The first thing I thought was, Brazil? What Brazil? Maybe Germany or Poland? No, I'm not going to Brazil. I don't know anyone in Brazil. I don't know anything about it. But then I thought, if this is what God wants, then I will go. Larissa and her family have now been here for just over three months. Once an entrepreneur with an online toy store and a business selling pet parrots and parakeets, she now spends a lot of her time making and selling traditional Ukrainian baked goods, like oreshki cookies, apple pies, honey cakes, and vareniki dumplings. Her daughter, Anastasia, now 22, sometimes helps out. From the start, we feel accepted and uh, we feel comfortable with Brazilian people. Our friends helped us to to do some work, to uh, have some money. It's a great blessing for us. But there's one Brazilian family in particular that has truly made them feel at home. Andrea Burkoble met Larissa during school pickup and they quickly became the best of friends. Andrea's great-grandparents were some of the first to come from Ukraine to settle in the Brazilian town. As immigrants in a new place far from home, they struggled. But the kindness of strangers helped them pull through. We immediately felt obliged to help them, in the same way that someone helped my great-grandparents for my grandparents. So it was a way for me to repay that debt. The two families now spend most evenings together. Tonight, they're sitting around the dinner table, sharing pizza and stories about their day. Andrea's husband, Paolo, and their two sons don't speak Ukrainian, but they manage to communicate with their new friends with the few words in Portuguese they've already learned and the help of Google Translate. Shared language and culture have helped Larissa and her daughters feel welcome in their new home. And it's the kindness of strangers that's made them want to stay. Jill Langua, NPR News, Prudentopolis, Brazil. When a hurricane hits the U.S. coastline, as Ian did last month in Florida, turn on the TV and what do you see? Palm trees wildly whipping in super high winds. The cliche, the cliched footage is supposed to signify nature's fury, but NPR's John Burnett sees something else, a symbol of the resilience of life. I finally counted them up. 
Ian is the 20th hurricane I've covered for NPR, either the big blow or the aftermath. They started with the monster Hugo in 1989, whose eye passed directly over me in Charleston, South Carolina. How many times I was sat in a hotel room, no power, talking to the news desk, and outside the shuttering window, those iconic palms, the trunks straining in the gale, the fronds flapping wildly behind them like a damsel in distress. But the palm trees rarely break. The palm tree gets as much wind as all the other trees, but it knows how to bend. It knows how to flex. Megan Kissinger is a wildlife artist and native Floridian who lives and paints in Fort Myers. And I think Floridians, if you've lived here long enough, which I've been through a few Category 5s, they're pretty terrifying, but you wake up the next morning and you do a count of all your family members and you say, everyone's here, okay, let's get to work cleaning up. Resilience, human and arboreal. As it happens, the graceful Gulfside city of Fort Myers will now be known for taking a direct hit from Category 4, Ian. So what better place to deliver an ode to the palm tree? Fort Myers' nickname is the City of Palms. And we thank you for coming and see our palm trees. Karen Maxwell meets me at the back gate of the Edison Ford Winter Estates, where she works as a horticulturist and teaches a popular class called Palm Reading. The lush grounds house the stately winter homes of Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, as well as a research lab, botanical gardens, museum, and garden shop. The property backs up to the sluggish Caloosahatchee River, and it abounds with palm trees. Princess palm, flamethrower palm, lipstick palm. Foxtail palm, bottle palm, buccaneer palm, thatch palm, Christmas tree. The Florida state tree is the sable palm, but the most famous species in this town is the royal palm. Maxwell stands next to a stout royal that's got to be six feet in circumference. This is our royal palm, and if you came up to this, you think you're knocking on a column of solid cement. What makes these trees outstanding in a hurricane is this tree is solid, and that's why I want you to feel how hard it is. This tree can bend almost 40 to 50 degrees and not break. Because it has no branches, it is not rigid. Palm trees come in more than 2,500 species, mostly occurring in the vast warm regions between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. They love a good tempest. All of them are adapted for wind. Many of them are adapted for flooding and many are also adapted for assault. They're adapted to exactly what happened here in Fort Myers during Hurricane Ian. They are, they are. They have the tools to survive. You see lots of brown palm fronds littering the ground after a hurricane. While it's a chore for the city, it's a good thing for the trees. The wind has pruned the dead fronds. The live green fronds are tough and aerodynamic and seldom break off. My name is Phil Buck. I'm a board certified master arborist. We're sitting here on McGregor Avenue in Fort Myers, Florida, looking at the royal palms that line the street. As you can see, they're, they're pretty beat up, but they're still standing. Buck is in charge of the tree division for Crawford Landscaping, based out of Naples. McGregor Avenue is how Fort Myers came to be called the City of Palms. It's lined with some 1,800 royal palms, some taller than 75 feet. Ian's gusts, clocked at 155 miles per hour, pushed a few of the McGregor palms askew, and a few keeled over in the storm with a thunderous thud. Some of these trees along McGregor, I don't know the exact age, but they can live up to 100 years or more. And we've had countless storms 
none as severe as Hurricane Ian, but obviously they're still here. They're still alive and kicking. The English statesman and philosopher Francis Bacon made an observation that well suits the brilliant adaptability of the palm tree. We cannot command nature except by obeying her. John Burnett, NPR News, Fort Myers, Florida. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. In Iran, the state news agency is reporting that a fire at Tehran's Evin prison killed four inmates and left more than 60 injured. The agency says the four died of smoke inhalation. The prison is known to house political prisoners as well as anti-government activists, and the deadly incident comes amid nationwide protests against the Iranian regime. NPR's Peter Kenyon is following the story from Istanbul and joins us. Good morning. Hi, Aisha. Peter, are there any other details about what happened? Well, there have been various reports over several hours now, some of them contradictory. One report said there had been clashes between prison guards and inmates, and the so-called rioters had set fire to a stack of prison uniforms causing the blaze. That was quickly disputed by a former inmate at the prison who tweeted that at that hour of the night, no prisoners would have had access to the workshops where the uniforms would be. Meanwhile, estimates of those injured just varied widely throughout the night. Uh, but now the Erna State News Agency has come out with what appears to be a more or less official toll of dead and wounded, quoting the Iranian judiciary as its source. And now another report from the media arm of the judiciary adds that in addition to the dead and injured, some 70 prisoners were rescued from the fire. What about Americans at the prison? Is there any information about them? Well, we know that Siamak Namazi, an Iranian-American businessman, had just been sent back into the prison following a two-week furlough, uh, which many international officials had been calling on Iran to make permanent. Uh, Iranian authorities also announced that Namazi's father, Bakr, who had also been detained when he tried to visit his son in prison, had his travel ban lifted so he could leave the country for urgent medical treatment, which he did. Uh, then there's the case of Ahmad Shargi, also an Iranian-American businessman. He was taken into custody in 2018, convicted of spying, sentenced to 10 years in prison. Tehran doesn't recognize dual citizenship, so they tried him as an Iranian. Uh, there's been no word on the status of either man since the fire. Shargi's family issued a statement. It says in part they are, quote, terrified by today's news out of Avin prison. Words cannot describe how concerned they are for his safety. Uh, they implored President Biden to get Imad Shargi, quote, out of danger and back home to the United States. Uh, the State Department had a response as well. Spokesman Ned Price saying, quote, we are following reports from Ivine prison with urgency and adding, quote, Iran is fully responsible for the safety of our wrongfully detained citizens who should be released immediately. Peter, in about the minute we have left, this is all happening against the backdrop of demonstrations and protests all across Iran following the death of a young woman in police custody. What's the latest on those? Well, those protests have shown no sign of abating, uh, despite a harsh and often violent crackdown by Iranian riot police and other forces. Uh, so far, some analysts have noted that the powerful Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps has not been asked to join that effort to quell these protests. 
if that happens, the bloodshed could get significantly worse. Reliable numbers, hard to come by, but rights groups have estimated at least 200 people killed, more than 1,500 others sent to jail because of these protests. And they began as protests against the death of a 22-year-old Masa Amini in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police, but they've developed into a general anti-government movement demanding the overthrow of Iran's clerical establishment. NPR's Peter Kenyon in Istanbul, thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. One person is under arrest after four people were stabbed early this morning in Boston near the intersection of Stewart and Tremont Streets. The injuries are not considered life-threatening. Police have not released the name of the suspect. Teachers in Malden and in Haverhill have threatened to strike tomorrow unless contract negotiations this weekend between union leaders and city officials make significant progress. The educators in both communities are calling for higher pay and better working conditions. In sports this afternoon in Cleveland, the Patriots take on the Browns. It is 61 degrees in Boston, highs today reaching the mid-60s, lows in the mid-40s overnight. Some showers tomorrow, Monday's highs in the low 60s. And on Tuesday, showers likely, mainly in the morning, and highs in the upper 50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmer's market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmers to you.com slash WBUR. Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Actor Rob McElhenney grew up like a lot of kids in his hometown of Philadelphia, crazy about his hometown sports teams. So when a chance to buy a failing Welsh soccer club came up, he thought, "Mm, why not? I just felt a kindred spirit to them. And I thought, man, if I could tell their story correctly and honor and respect them, I think I could get people to watch it all over the world. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, bringing wines from around the world to members with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. And Will, please remind us of last week's challenge. 
Yes, it came from listener Melissa De Paola of Noonan, Georgia. I said, name two things that many houses are built with, blank and blank. Drop the first letter of the first thing, change the last two letters of the second thing to a Y, and you'll name a popular TV show, blank and blank. What is it? And the, the things you build a house with are brick and mortar. Make those changes, you get Rick and Morty. Wow, this was a challenge that got a lot of answers. We received more than 4,300 correct answers. And the lucky winner is Christopher Marks of Olympia, Washington. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? Um, off and on for about 16 years. But I understand this is your first submission? It is. It is. Oh, wow. Did you also buy a lottery ticket? That's what I was going to suggest. <laughs> Maybe I'll put that on my to-do list. You need to go out and do it because that your first submission and you got it. There's some people out here playing for years and they ain't got it. They're going to be mad at you. Beginner's luck. <laughs> what do you do when you're not playing the puzzle? Uh, I'm a delivery driver. I do uh, uh, gig work in and around Olympia. Okay, my husband does as well. So are you ready to play this puzzle? I am ready as ever. Take it away, Will. All right, Christopher, I'm going to give you two words. Drop one letter from each of them to leave two words that are in the same category of things. For example, if I said drill, D-R-I-L-L, and stage, S-T-A-G-E, you would say dill and sage. Because you dropped one letter from each of them, and you get two herbs. Okay. So here we go. Number one is feather, F-E-A-T-H-E-R, and taunt, T-A-U-N-T. Feather and taunt. I yeah. see father and aunt. A father and aunt, both relatives. It's correct. Number two is marks, M-A-R-K-S, and venues, V-E-N-U-E-S. Marks, that's my name. <laughs> And there venues, we um, we're going to have to drop the consonant, Mars and Venus. Yes, yes. You got it. Statue, S-T-A-T-U-E, and country. Statue and country. I've got state and county. You have it. Latka, L-A-T-K-E, and pound, P-O-U-N-D. Latka, you said L-A-T-K-E. Right. And pound, I've got lake and pond. You have it. Scorn, S-C-O-R-N, and beret, B-E-R-E-T. Corn and beet. Uh-huh. Closest, C-L-O-S-E-S-T, and shall, S-H-A-L-L. Shall. I shall figure this out. It you is... Will. It is... Hall and closet, closet and hall. Uh huh. Two rooms is right. Blush, B L U S H, and charter, C H A R T E R. Blush and charter. That's um, blush with a B. Mm -hmm. Let's see, B L U S H, blush. I see bush, and he just celebrated a birthday. There you go. I am blanking a on president, this. A president. A president. Carter. Oh, Bush yes. and Carter. Carter is it. Good, good. Your last one is Preach, P-R-E-A-C-H, and Bandana, B-A-N-D-A-N-A. -A -A. Um, Peach and Banana. You got it. <laughs> you got it. How do you feel? 
That was really fun. I I feel good. (laughs) Well, you did an excellent job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Christopher, what member station do you listen to? I listen to uh, KNKX out of Seattle, Tacoma and KUOW out of Olympia. That's Christopher Marks of Olympia, Washington. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you so much for having me. This is this is a great time. All right, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener David Edelheit of Oyster Bay, New York. Think of a pair of two-syllable words that are pronounced the same, except one is accented on the first syllable while the other is accented on the second. And the word that's accented on the first syllable is associated with confrontation, while the word that's accented on the second syllable is associated with cooperation. What words are these? So again, a pair of two-syllable words pronounced the same, except one's accented on the first syllable and the other on the second. And the, the first one is associated with confrontation. The second one is associated with the opposite, cooperation. What words are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries is Thursday, October 20th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. So you may have heard the thumbs up emoji is dead, as in not cool, don't do it. But hold up, we may be victims of clickbait intended to stir up dissension between young and old, left and right. After someone dug up an old Reddit thread and presented it as gospel last week. Elder millennial Jonas Downey read one of the articles and decided to see if his 13-year-old daughter's interpretation of certain emojis differed from his. We started taking for granted. Thumbs up means thumbs up. And for me, like, the grimacing face just means, like, erg, something bad is happening. It's very, like, straight, the way that I interpret it. And my daughter does not. There's, like, there's an additional layer of kind of, like, sarcasm. His daughter hates the thumbs up, and she thinks the crying, laughing emoji is weak. I don't know. It doesn't feel as expressive as other things you can use, like the skull face and the actually, like, sobbing emoji. I, I feel just have more personality than just, like, ha-ha. So it, it's been bleached of its impact, so now they need something that has a stronger a stronger impact that's that's more outrageous or more over the top. So yeah, laughing to death, right? Um, that's a great example. That's Susan Herring. She's a linguistics professor at Indiana University who specializes in digital communication. I think the, the battle here is really about the connotations of the emoji, the pragmatic meanings, and those are fluid. Emojis are a part of modern language, and they can mean many things to many people all at once. It's characteristic of what young people do with language. They're always generating new, new expressions and new words and new ways of speaking to distinguish themselves in opposition to other groups that are perceived as being out of it or square, as we used to say back in the day. Now, a lot of young people online say they aren't that bothered by the thumbs up emoji. 
They've honestly got bigger concerns, but the conversation sparked by those clickbait articles like how people understand each other were real. I mean, we spent some quality time here at Weekend Edition working through this. Does my thumbs up bother you? What about the chat mark? Why can't people just use their words? Do you think I'm being passive aggressive when I just say, okay? Not when you say okay, but when you say K, that's aggressive. It's not even passive. It was a can of worms for a hot minute. So bottom line, is the thumbs up emoji really dead? Professor Herring says, That's a question for future linguists. For now, at least, judging by our Slack messages today, we're keeping it alive. Sincerely, though sometimes sarcastically, which is just the way we like it. April Ryan started covering the White House for American Urban Radio Networks in 1997, and she's held that beat ever since. A black female journalist in a White House press corps that has historically not had many of them, her reporting has focused in particular on the challenges facing black Americans. And in her new book, Black Women Will Save the World, she reflects on that experience and those of other prominent black women in power. This is my love song to America, my love song to black women, and in particular, my mother as well, you know, to show we made it. April Ryan is now the Washington, D.C. bureau chief for The Griot and a political analyst for CNN. Her new book is a mix of memoir, reporting, and analysis. And she says it's structured that way because everyone has a story. And I'd rather have the voice of the person who lived it tell the story. Mm. You know, from Stacey Abrams to Keisha Lance Bottoms to Frederica Newton, the widow of Huey P. Newton, Valerie Jarrett, and so, so many others. Latasha Brown, Melanie Campbell. I mean, just so many others who tell the story about this moment. And the problem, Aisha, is that we are in a moment that people are not really marking. And when you write a book, it's a record of history for that moment. People need to know when I'm long and gone that Black women rose to the occasion, fought to be there, and held the table down and started convening their own table. What do you think this moment is? It's not an anomaly. It's not an aberration. It's not myth or conjecture. It's reality. You have the first Black woman on the U.S. Supreme Court, the first Black woman or woman of color who identifies as Black as the Vice President of the United States. You have so many people in high places, high spaces, who are now Black women. You and I shared this experience of being in the White House press corps. I remember being in the press corps. We were about to go into the Oval Office. And you can get jostled about. I was pregnant. We're standing outside. You were there. And I remember you telling me, get in front of me, and we're going to make sure you okay. <laughs> because you get, like, it's rough and tumble in these, like, scrums. It's very was, aggressive, the, the, and yeah. <laughs> That was it's the mothering instinct in me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you were like, get in front of me. We're going to make sure you're okay. I mean, I felt like you were providing that sisterhood in that moment. Do you feel like that is a sisterhood you yearned for when you first got to the White House? I imagine there were not a lot of Black women at the White House when you got there. Here's the thing. Um, you work for NPR. You know, yes. many of our counterparts were in mainstream media. I'm mm -hmm. in what they used to call specialty media. 
<laughs> whatever that is. And, you know, it's lonely being specialty. And by specialty, you mean like you were at American Urban Radio Networks. Now you're at the Grio. Yeah, I was there at that boutique network. But now I opened up the political arm of the Grio. But still, you're considered specialty media. And, they, you know, there are some people in our space that believe you're second class. I'm second class to none. And mm. one of the reasons why I wrote this book Black women in the press corps, minority women were vilified. Black women who were speaking out just on issues of communities were vilified during that moment. And I said, we are winners. We are the glue to communities. We are the glue to the church house, the schoolhouse, our house, the government house. And I said, we cannot let that narrative be. This was during the Trump administration, and I'm not saying that was the only time you faced or Black women faced criticism, but certainly it was intensified, and it's been talked about how you in particular were singled out, Yamiche Alcindor, Abby Phillips, others. I was in some of those press conferences, you know, where the president was telling you to sit down. I remember you were trying to ask about voting rights. And it was actually four years ago at this moment, and it was about voter suppression. And he was mm -hmm. talking voter fraud. And I said something, sir, while he was calling on people, what about voter suppression? And he responded to my off-mic question. And while he was talking off the side, I stood up. And then that's when all of that back and forth, sit down and all that stuff went through. How do you deal with the cost that comes along with some of the idea of Black women are strong, you can handle it, you can deal with it, but there's a cost that comes along with that. How do you manage that? Well, the cost for me, and I reveal in the book that I lost a lot of my hair from stress, the stress of being attacked, the stress of trying to keep my kids safe, myself safe, and still do a job in the midst of a very hostile work environment. But how I cope and how many others, I have a standing appointment every Tuesday morning with a counselor to help me refocus and reshape what had happened and understand it wasn't about me. It was about pushing an agenda and using me as a scapegoat. And this is because during your years covering the White House under President Trump, you faced harassment, death threats, all sorts of things from people angry at the questions that you asked to former President Trump and former President Trump called you out on a number of occasions leading to more threats. Is on that, a number of occasions. You got it right. Yes. Mm. The final section of your book is devoted to the future, the next generation of Black women and girls. Thinking back on your career, like what advice do you have for young women who are hoping to follow your path? Be authentic and know that you're enough. Early on in my career, I used to hear people say, oh, fake it till you make it. I was never into that fake it till you make it stuff. Because mm -hmm. at some point you're exposed if you're faking it, right? Know that you are enough. Your existence, your being, and what you bring to the table is enough. And build from that. April Ryan is the author of Black Women Will Save the World and White House correspondent for The Griot. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Culligan Water since 1936. A local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 61 degrees in Boston. Highs today reaching the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next time on Open Source, Humane Inhumanity. America's wars rely increasingly on high tech to target the killing precisely and keep it far, far away from us. But what if that sanitized sort of warfare has simply prolonged the horror? Wartime is next on Open Source, today at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.